0: Well, we're in the third week of a series that we've titled Riding the Rails. The idea, think of a train track, that we want to keep our relationships on track. And so we've been looking at a very specific section of a letter that James, who's Jesus' brother, writes to the early church. It's a gathering of some of his best thoughts and ideas, his wisdom, that he's gained in being a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And he writes this letter. It's not written as an organized, like, here's the thought and the flow of all of it. It's written much more like what we call wisdom literature, where there are different ideas smattered throughout, kind of scattered in this beautiful letter. And so we're focusing on one that we think is very helpful to all of us in relationships. We're in the third week of a four week series, and this is our main passage we've been looking at. He says, This, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Now, I won't rehash this. You can watch it online if you didn't, but we went in week one about the role of listening and our pursuit of really hearing what other people have to say and how we go about that. We spoke of how we learn we know someone and we love them when we actually listen to hear who they are and what they think and feel. The second thing was to be slow to speak and we looked last week at the role of how we speak and how we speak to someone in honoring them and being honest with them and being humble to them and before them. And then this week we're going to look, and next week really together at being slow in becoming angry. Now, let me say this about it to begin with that if we do these first two things, if we learn to be quick to listen and slow to speak, this follows that we would be slower to become angry and frustrated in conversation. Today, what we're going to do is look at some of the pitfalls of how we get into conflict and what happens in the midst of conflict. Show of hands, how many of you have ever been in conflict in your life in any way? Yes. How many of you have noticed the other person is completely the cause of your conflict? Yeah, I figured. Thanks. It's a difficult thing, isn't it? Us wrestling with why conflict happens, of how it happens. And so this week we're going to look at some of the concerns, and next week we're going to look at how can we have patterns that actually follow the way of Jesus. Now James understands this concern about how we become angry and why we have conflict. In fact, later in the letter, he gives some specificity to what concerns him he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, before we go on, I want to make clear here, I don't think the early church was killing each other at significance not that none of that happened he's speaking here just like jesus does when he says when you have hate in your heart you kill when you have desire for something over someone else you covet whether the activity happens or not so he's speaking of the condition of your heart though it can manifest in activity and he says here something inside of us battles once we get into conflict now, in a simple way, you may say what it is is we have some expectation that's not met. But I want us just to begin before we get into the specifics of all this today, and consider that we may be blind to why it is we get angry and what we do. Psalm in Psalm nineteen says. Who can discern his own errors or his or her own errors? Protect me from presumptuous sins. Later, much later in the Psalms, in 139, the psalmist writes, search my heart and see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In another psalm, it speaks specifically about how we can't know the depths of ourselves, but the Spirit searches us. So I want to be clear. Some of our trouble and conflict comes from our own blindness and struggle. But James wants us to be clear that there's something inside of us, something in our own desires that battle, that create conflict. That does not mean it's true of all of it. But I want to take you to something. It's an image of Jesus overcoming the devil and his return. We know that he will one day return and all will be made right. And in Revelation, it actually gives us image of what happens when Jesus makes things right. But what I want you to notice is the attribute of the devil. And make no mistake, the devil has lots of attributes. He's spoken of as the father of lies, masquerading as an angel of light, all sorts of images. But this is one that relates to conflict. It says this in Revelation 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, meaning Jesus has returned, for the accuser, the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Satan here is given an image of accusation. I think if we're honest, we can consider that when we get in conflict, it's easy to come, become agents of accusation, isn't it? I tend in my own humanity to think of things as either all good or all bad. So when someone does something that I'm in conflict about, they don't just make a mistake, they become all bad. I want to say this just from the beginning. We, we talked about this in the last few weeks. We're all made in God's image, which means we should see people of infinite value in everything we go through, even in, in the most significant of conflicts. But I also want to explain to you, you and I are complicated beings. Did you know there's a lot of good things you do and a lot of bad things you do? A lot of good things I do and a lot of bad things I do. In other words, it is not black and white. In, in Genesis, it actually refers to us as having yetzer to and yetzer ra, which means the inclination to evil and the inclination to good. And what I wanna remind us of is we all are complicated. So when there's a conflict, it's not all good and it's not all bad, it's part of our struggle in how we live. What we see here, though, is that the enemy is one who is an accuser. And do you realize at the end of time, all accusation will end? Do you realize we'll be in perfect relationship with God and each other? No more conflicts. I mean, that should bring an amen to every single one of us. It's funny, you know, in the Proverbs, I don't know why it does this, but it speaks of husbands and wives. It tells that a husband... If a wife is, it refers to it as nagging, which I'm sorry, but that's the word it uses. If a wife is getting on him about things, it's like a dripping faucet. And it says he'd like to be in the corner of the house. And then it says, away at the farthest part of the roof. (laughs) In case you always wondered why men run from women, right there it is in the Proverbs. I want to have the conflict. I do not want to have the conflict. And I'm not in any way blaming the women. I'm just saying this is the reality of conflict, isn't it? We struggle in actually having it in a good way, a godly way, and one that brings resolution, not accusation. You see, that's a learning part for us in this. In conflict, many of us want to bring accusation. God wants us to bring resolution. I want to say it again. We want to bring accusation, and God wants to bring resolution. God wants restored relationships, not broken winners that divide. It's where we start in this, and I wanted you to see these, and then I want to tackle a very particular problem that I see in our culture today, that I'm not alone in this. In fact, it's written about, it's referred to, it's not directly written in the Bible as a statement of it, but it's simply called triangulation. It's the idea that when we have conflict, we don't take it where it belongs, and I want to walk through some specific things, but I just want to ask a question before I do. How many of you here are from the Midwest and the most or all of your life in the Midwest? Just raise your hand. Okay, great. And I am too. Do you know in the Midwest that we're considered nice people that don't say mean things? To each other's face. We say it other places. You go out to the east, it's actually called Negadelphia if you're in Philadelphia, meaning they're negative. If you go anywhere on the eastern seaboard, people just seem mad. They say whatever they think, whenever they think. So they don't seem to hide their frustration. It just doesn't get resolved in a different way. But I wanna speak to us because our very culture, what I'm about to talk about, I think relates heavily to how we relate to one another. So I'm going to give you three simple examples of how we triangulate. I'm going to give you them from a church perspective, but then we'll look at how that happens in families and in different settings. This was written about by a pastor named Jay Fowler. I'm using his material on this. Jay has actually even helped us as a church, but works with a company called PastorServe that helps churches all over the, the nation. And this is actually in a book called Pastors Are People Too, where they talk about it for the life of the church. So here's the example. Mike is a worship leader. And Mike drives the worship team, and Heidi's on the team. And she did not get put on the team as often as she usually does when the new schedule came out. And Heidi is upset with who? Mike. So she does what a good Christian would do, and she goes to talk to Steve about it. And she shares her struggle and her hurt and her frustration over what she thinks Mike did, why he did it, not even what he did, but why because she hasn't talked to him about it. Now, she finishes that conversation, she tells the secret, and she feels better, because she's kind of vented it. How do you think Steve's doing now? Steve has received her accusation. Steve might have a few other issues with Mike, and one of them's kind of close to what she said, and Steve now has a new thing to build up in his own mind. Do you see how she has become an accuser of a brethren? to another brother in the statement of, I need to vent and I need a safe place to share. Now, if you think this is simply a church illustration, do you know this happens in families? I know you will be shocked to hear this. Do you know that siblings talk about each other to their parents or other siblings? Do you know parents talk about each other to their children? No? Yes we do this with extended families and with friends? Do you know that this actually happens in environments outside of families? When you're school age and you're growing up, do you think students do this to each other? You bet they do. And do you think when we become these mature adults and we get in the workplace, we do this to our, our coworkers and our bosses? You bet we do. So church is a nice, safe example, but none of you are off the hook. That's all I wanted you to be clear on. So this is one way it happens. Let me take you to a second one that takes it another step. Same thing happens, Heidi tells Steve, and now she says to Steve, hey, will you go talk to Mike? I don't want to talk to him about it. And Steve is now the ambassador for Heidi to resolve the conflict with Mike, thus the triangle. Steve now has to go and try to represent to Heidi what, or to Mike, what Heidi told him. He wasn't part of any of the interaction, so he doesn't know any of the details but he's now set in this mood to interact. Do you see how that might be a problem? In case you don't, this is a family problem now. And your kids, your parent, your kids have a problem, they tell a sibling, and they tell the sibling to come talk to you about it. How do you like that? You're married and your spouse tells a kid to tell you. How do you like that? You're in school and a friend tells you what another friend said. How does that sit with you? You're at work, and they tell another one. You're getting the picture, right, of how this is unhealthy, and this is not direct communication, and this is a way that we become accusers. Let me take you to the third one, which is a covert message, which is now Heidi wants to tell Steve. She wants Steve to tell Mike, but she doesn't want Mike to know who or what Steve was talking about. In fact, maybe he'll just say someone, or maybe he'll say more than one person. Or maybe he'll say a lot of people. Maybe he'll even say everyone. Are you getting the mess as it grows right now? I know this will be a shock to you, but did you know that is something we regularly hear in the church? I mean, everybody's telling me this. Well, how many people are everyone? Three? Okay. Or people just assume they are great counters and they know how many. Now, I want you to picture how that happens in every setting you're in. A lot of people have an issue with you. A lot of people have this problem. You know what I found oftentimes with problems are? There are some similarities that some different people will have. But each conflict is often its own. And it builds a larger envelope and a more confusing path to reconciliation when all these group together and they're very different and very unique. I'm just wanting you to get a picture of the destructiveness we tend to get into in these kinds of things. And because we're all from the Midwest, we should all understand we all do this, right? Like I'm not singling, I'm not trying to tell a story that I'm, by the way, I'm not secretly getting at someone. I've been planning this for months. Here they go. There's nobody I have in mind. I, I've been guilty of this. We all can be. In fact, why don't we do in the church to make it more spiritual? Hey, I just need to tell you this. Can you pray with me about this? Vomit. You might need to clean up when we're done. I want to take you to how we respond because our goal in this, in healthy conflict, is to collapse the triangle. It's to get these two people interacting over what went on, not bring others into the mix. It's to remember we're not here to accuse and tear down, we're here to confront and build up. So let me go through it if you're each of these people. If you're Steve, if you're person C, we've got A and B in a conflict and it heads over here, here's a couple simple things you can do. When Heidi comes to you, and this is in your family, it's any situation, you can say, did you talk to Mike about this yet? And then if they actually say they have you, ask, what have you talked about? Get clarity on that. But most of the time, what you're gonna hear is no. And then you say, I really wanna encourage you to go back to the individual and not do damage to what's happened in that relationship or damage my perspective. So I'll pray for you, I'll encourage you. If it doesn't go well, I'll go with you. And then there's a final step that can help this final person, which is simply to say this. Listen, I'm gonna wait a week, I'll check back in with you, and you check back in and say, have you had the conversation? And if they say no, you can simply say this. Hey, I'm gonna go tell Mike that he probably should talk to you about an unresolved issue. I won't say what it is, I won't try to represent it. I'm just gonna help close the gap. I'm here to help you get right in this. It requires two things, courage and love. Because what you're saying is this will never get resolved triangulating. It only gets resolved when people come together. Next person. You're Heidi. You're the one who's had the difficult situation. Now we've made it clear already, but I want to say it for the sake of all of us. When you have a problem with someone, Guess where the scripture tells us to go? To the person. Please don't say they don't listen, they won't hear me, they never do. Now, if you've done this multiple times, you start to bring others into the mix. Those are separate scenarios. But the first thing is you go. And make no mistake, you go humbly because one thing we have to know is none of us has a complete perspective. I'll, I'll give you an example of this in my own life. I had a, an issue I was struggling with with a peer uh, outside of our local church. But, you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm in different roles with different churches and different people. And I had gotten to a point where I believed some pretty negative things about this individual based on some actions that I'd seen towards me. So I had to go, this was really difficult, but I went and said, listen, these are the things that have happened and this is the story I'm telling myself, which was a very negative story about him that he was out, he really didn't think much of me or my leadership. Now, what he said back was, hey, I can see how you see it from those things, that's not true, here's why this one happened and I am so sorry that we didn't talk about this and I see you much differently than I said. Guess what, the triangle got collapsed. But let me tell you one other thing that happened. He had issues with me too, he hadn't told me. <laughs> Sucka had a few things back to say. <laughs> and they were good things. He went the same pattern. Hey, there's, there's some things that have happened. I presumed you felt this way. I was like, didn't feel that way at all. Totally see how you could. Not only was I reconciled to him, he was reconciled to me. And we forged ahead now in a better way. Both being honest. And there's a big separation, by the way, between what we think, what happened, and how we perceive it. And I'm going to get more of the next week into that. But you get a picture of it, right? I hope you're seeing what I mean. That we go back humbly to realize, you know what? I only have my perspective. I can't tell you exactly what happened. And the last thing is we go back honestly. We have to be honest. We can't do this pretending and saying a few things. I meet a lot of people that are so intuitive. They think if I just give kind of an idea around it, the other person will get it. Just so you know, they're not as intuitive as you are. And you still may not be as intuitive as you think. Be clear. Be crystal clear. But I want to tell you one more thing in this. I love that we're celebrating communion, we do it every week, but I love it particularly today, because the Christian life is to be a life full of forgiving each other. Do you realize that your friends and family and church family and coworkers will fail you? It will happen. What does God call us to? Forgiveness. And I don't mean it simply. I'm not supposed to, hey, you're supposed to say I forgive you. Have you ever done that and gone? I feel nothing but bitterness still. This is not helping. Forgiveness is Jesus suffers, he bears the burden, he dies to retribution, and he rises to new life. That's the path of forgiveness, by the way. Not trying to fix it all today. I just want you to see that as an aside. That's part of what will happen in this. Now, the final thing is, let me take you to your mic. You're the one that's gonna be dealing with this. And make no mistake, you will have to face not hearing great things about yourself. Most of us do not like negative feedback. Did you know that? Most of us would just prefer, tell me how awesome I am and forget the rest. There's been a lot of research done on feedback uh, one of my favorite books on it is Thanks for the Feedback, is what it's titled. Been at lots of leadership conferences where they speak about this. But through research, they found three triggers that keep us from hearing feedback. And I just want to quickly go over them because they might be helpful to you. One is called the truth trigger. And what it means is something in the feedback is not true, so you tell yourself everything about the feedback is not true. Do any of you have that skill honed? Because I do. I am really good at finding out what's not true and dismissing everything I hear. That's what we tend to do when someone comes to us. Second one is called uh, the relationship trigger. And have you ever had somebody come and tell you more truth than you thought your relationship warranted? Like, I don't know you this well. Back off. Just so you know, in the role of a pastor, apparently all of you feel you know me quite well. And I still take it, but sometimes I'm like, I don't know them that well, okay. Okay. Sometimes we dismiss feedback because we don't have that strong of a relationship, and we say, I don't know or trust you enough to receive this. Again, we dismiss it, though. It's the third one, and the one I struggle the most with, which is called an identity trigger, which is when someone gives you negative feedback, you say, I'm not okay, something's wrong with me, I'm fatally flawed, I can't receive this because I'm all bad. Now I tell you all those to be reminded, something will most likely trigger when you get negative feedback that says, I need to dismiss this and get rid of it as quickly as I can. What you need to do is discern it. You don't need to get rid of it. You need to discern what's true in this. What do I have to evaluate in this? So if you are Mike and you're getting it, your first thing is you need to ask the Lord to help you see what might be true in it. You need to be in a place where you go, I really wanna seek this. You need to listen graciously And you need to rest in who you are in the midst of it. Three kind of simple things for all of us in this that I think we can all grow from. Now, I wanted to, I meant to do this earlier, but I want to go back to it just because it's a particular scenario I see it. It'll probably make some of you laugh and some of you squirm. But one of the places I've seen this triangulation most happen is in the life of parents of athletes. Did you know that most of us are not pleased with our kids' coaches? I see a coach and I kind of want to walk up to him and just go, hey, it's preemptively, I'm sorry. Like somehow we think coaches are supposed to be perfect as they coach our kids for that huge check they get that weren't they winning the championship and figuring everything out. Do you know how often as parents we talk about the coach to other people? Squirming yet? I'm using it as an example because it's a common one. But what I want to ask you is, will you begin to ask the Lord, are there places I feed accusation, not restoration? God's calling us to something different. Some years ago, uh, I preached a message uh, from the Psalms. It was one of the first messages I gave. And it was a little, in it was a statement about gossip. And I had this experience that I've just, it's always marked me. I told a simple story. It's a story that I think Billy Graham initially told, but it's been told many places. It's a story of a woman who goes to a vicar, and uh, she tells him she's been gossiping and says, what should I do? And he tells her to go to each home where she's gossiped about that person and take a feather and leave it on the doorstep. And then she comes back, and she says, I did all that, and I don't feel anything different. He says, now I want you to go back and pick up every feather. She goes back, and guess what? Every feather is gone because the winds have blown since then. And she comes back and says, I I can't pick this up. They're all gone. And he says, I want you to understand that's how it is with our words. Once we say them, we can never take it back. Now, the reason I tell you it is I, I can't explain it any other way. I actually started to weep when I told this story in church. And the only way I can describe it is I felt the pain of the heart of God in that moment. It just kind of wrecked me. (laughs) Satan spends every moment of every day standing before the Father tearing us down. I don't want us to be part of that. At all. Ever. I don't want to wait till Jesus comes back to know we're all good. The church is supposed to bring the kingdom now. And it's stuff we say directly, but it's stuff that's said to us. And make no mistake, by the way, when you're silent, what do you think the person assumes? I agree with you. They agree with me. Why do you know? Because they didn't say anything. Eh, so now what that means, they probably don't know what to do. But we're called to something. God calls us to courage and love. You see, courage and love, they close triangles. Courage and love help us to take those things that are talked about and put it back where it belongs. Man, God's calling us to live a different way. I'm glad we're celebrating communion because I think some of you this stirs up hurt. You know what? The presence of Jesus, He meets us in our hurt because He experiences betrayal and accusation and experiences on our behalf. Some of you will experience conviction. I have been a culprit of this. Some of you will experience conviction. I have been complicit in this. God's going to meet you. And the same way we sit before Jesus going, I want to be right and be forgiven. And I want to be the very ambassador that brings the very thing you're bringing to the people around me. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to celebrate communion in a minute as an act of response to what we've talked about. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for each person here. God, you know, I prayed at the beginning that I, if I have anything to say that's not from you, it will fall to the ground and be forgotten. So I am praying, God, that those things will happen. It will fall and be forgotten. But Lord, I know your spirit is in this message too. So I'm praying for comfort for those who've been hurt, for courage for those who've been quiet, and for conviction for those of us who tear people down and bring accusation. Oh, Lord, help us to be the answer to this problem in the world of accusation and destruction, to be agents of restoration, not agents of accusation. God, convict and lead each of us now in your name. I pray this, amen.